0: Jody Wilson-Raybould, also known by her initials JWR and her ancestral name Puglas, is a lawyer, advocate, and proud Indigenous Canadian. She was the independent MP for Vancouver-Granville And she's vying for that position again right now because we are in the midst of a federal election in Canada. She was elected as a member of parliament for the Liberal Party back in October 2015. Shortly thereafter, she was appointed Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada, making her the first Indigenous person to serve in this portfolio. She then served as Minister of Veterans Affairs from January 2019 to February 2019 when she resigned. Prior to entering politics, she was a provincial crown prosecutor in Vancouver, a treaty commissioner and regional chief of the BC Assembly of First Nations. She studied at University of Victoria and later University of British Columbia. She lives with her husband in uh, Vancouver, welcome to the Bibliophile.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I want to read the first paragraph of the book. And the book is, From Where I Stand, Rebuilding Indigenous Nations for a Stronger Canada, published by University of British Columbia Press. Indeed. A central lesson instilled in me from a very young age, was to be careful with words because you cannot take them back. You must always speak the truth. This has been a vital teaching and one that has guided me in my relationships as I strive to always be thoughtful and considerate in working with others. Why did you start with that paragraph?
1: Well, I, I mean, thank you for having me here again and to chat about this book. I started with that paragraph because this book represents 10 years of work in various roles and in those various roles I had a certain amount of of influence and um, being able to give speeches and lectures on such an important topic as Indigenous rights and reconciliation I took great responsibility in that and wanted to ensure that the words I spoke uh, were thoughtful and contributed towards a dialogue and discussion uh, to support Indigenous Peoples and the rest of Canada moving towards true reconciliation and the basis upon which I have approached my roles as Regional Chief and as Minister is rooted, grounded in my Culture and my teachings, and um, we come from—I come from an oral society where, if you do not speak the truth, then your culture dies. So that's something that has has stayed with me uh, throughout my life and in the roles that I've held.
0: Now, forgive me for raising this um, offensive idiom or saying, but when you wrote. Careful with words because you cannot take them back. I automatically thought of Indian giver. Mm. And I wonder if you were purposefully addressing that.
1: Oh, that's an interesting reflection. It wasn't something that was in my mind when I wrote it. It was just really rooted in, in who I or how I was raised and knowing exactly what it says words matter and words have impact on people particularly around important issues um, emotional issues and at times debilitating topics for people that bring back memories and sometimes harm
0: because that's that is an offensive stereotype and uh, this addresses it head on
1: yeah who i am is is what you get you ask me a question and i'll give you an answer to it and And what I've found or what's carried me through uh, various political roles that I've held, if uh, you say the same thing, no matter what the audience or who the audience, then you can never get yourself into any kind of trouble.
0: Yeah, that's how you end off the book, I think. Mm -hmm. It was proven by the ethics commissioner that you did tell the truth when you uh, were um, in front of the uh, justice committee. That means that people who contradicted you weren't telling the truth.
1: Well, I, for whatever reason or um, other people provided information, I was very, throughout a period of time that was extremely difficult and, and challenging around the whole matter with respect to um, the topic of the Ethics Commissioner's report, the four and a half hour testimony that I had before the Justice Committee, reflecting on my role as the Attorney General with respect to the Director of Public Prosecutions and, and the whole SNC affair. It wasn't easy, but it was easy for me to sit there and to have clearly understood my role as the Attorney General. Having been um, someone that continues to take copious notes and uh, a a detailed memory, was speaking the truth and Mm. um, I know that the truth always comes out and I felt vindication for the independence of the Office of the Attorney General and the Director of Public Prosecutions when the Ethics Commissioner released his report.
0: Mm Last week I interviewed John Iverson about his, uh, or Iverson, about his biography of Trudeau, and uh, he remarked that uh, about trust, that he trusts most politicians to give him uh, back his wallet if they've found it, but not to tell the whole truth. And uh, I guess you're saying that you haven't been able to tell the whole truth.
1: Well, in terms of the whole discussion and issue around SNC? Yeah. Well, I have provided all of the relevant information that I have with respect to SNC and what happened during the time that I was the Attorney General. And that was the waiver that was provided in terms of of cabinet confidences, sister-client privilege, and oaths that I've taken. So mm-hmm. I've provided, um, during that period of time, all the relevant information.
0: So there isn't another bombshell you want to draw then?
1: I, I mean, as was stated in the Ethics Commissioner's Report, there are other individuals that he would have liked to have uh, had discussions with beyond what I've been privy to. I, I suspect and know to a certain degree that there's other information that other individuals have with respect to this particular issue, but as for me, in, in terms of my engagements and my role as the AG, mm. all of that information right now is in the public domain. Anything okay. beyond that is still, in terms of my discussions with the Prime Minister or otherwise, subject of confidence.
0: So you don't feel like you've been muzzled then?
1: Well, I mean, there was the waiver, so I was able to impart my experience, and that's reflected in the, the commissioner's report, um, so in terms of the information that I have, um, that's been provided.
0: Okay. Let's move on to the important stuff. Okay. The book, uh, basically, you want to galvanize action, you say in the book. mm mm-hmm. Uh, to further the cause of self-government. Now, Alberto Manguel, the famed bibliophile, spoke to me about this recently. He said that you have set back that cause by um, making Trudeau out to be a liar. Do you agree <laughs> with that or not?
1: I don't agree with that. You're not
0: in power anymore though, you're an independent. Mm -hmm. So how does that help you further the cause if you're outside, of, away from the levers of power?
1: Well, I mean there's no question that being a Minister of the Crown, being the Minister of Justice and the Attorney General brings with it. a significant amount of power and the ability to introduce legislation. I was very proud to have introduced 14 pieces of legislation, all of which uh, received royal assent, and I'm incredibly proud of that work. But in terms of Justin Trudeau and our interaction, I do not feel that I did anything to him. I was simply uh, in my role as the Attorney General doing my job. And I, as I said earlier, understood that job, understood my responsibility to uphold the independence of the justice system. And had I, or if I was to have been provided the opportunity to do again, I would do it exactly the same. And um, I do not believe um, that being in power is more important than upholding one's principle. And um, if we get to that place, then the decisions we make are... We can't get to a place where where power overcomes principle because the decisions we make are not going to stand the test of time, and it undermines the very nature of our democracy, and that's what I was uh, working towards ensuring was upheld.
0: And that's why so many people admire you.
1: Oh, well, I, I um, have received... A significant amount of support right across the country and even beyond. And it is heartwarming to know that Canadians appreciate and are having discussions around the rule of law, around the independence of our institutions, and wanting to believe that there are politicians in Ottawa that have integrity.
0: That's why I wished you were running in my riding.
1: Well, you can always move to Vancouver,
0: <laughs> Granville. <laughs> um, let's build the case then, your case, starting in 1763, because throughout these speeches, you you make reference to important decisions and uh, and events that have taken place in Canadian history. So, uh, George the Third made a royal proclamation and a wampum belt was involved. Perhaps you could talk about that briefly.
1: Sure. Um, Well, the the speeches uh, try to, um, given the context and where they were, to give a bit of historical background with respect to the relationship between Indigenous peoples and the Crown government. And back in 1763, I speak in some of the speeches about Wampum being presented to the Crown. And and this isn't from my culture, but in Wampum, that gift provided to the Crown means that uh, two cultures coming together, respecting one another's laws and traditions, and ways of being and uh, coexisting peacefully side by side not interfering with one's governing structures but again coexisting and that was the basis upon which indigenous peoples in the crown came together and a lot has happened in the intervening years since uh, wampum was originally presented to the crown in that um, things changed as time passed and um, the uh, crown governments um, sought to impose their uh, laws and their policies on Indigenous peoples for um, the worse in terms of denying their rights and the recognition that they were the original inhabitants of this land. Mm-hmm.
0: Then Confederation in 1867, where assimilation became the the policy.
1: Mm-hmm. I speak about, uh, and this is the work that we're trying to remedy right now, Mm. Um, when the so-called Fathers of Confederation came together uh, to um, create our country, Mm. um, Indigenous peoples weren't present. They were left out. Jurisdiction being divided between um, the central government and, and the provinces. What we have been trying to do ever since is to correct that absence of Indigenous peoples around that table and um, enable Indigenous peoples to have rights recognition and see themselves reflected in the mirror of our Constitution. That's the work that uh, Indigenous peoples since um, the beginning of this country have been trying to advocate for, have been very successful in doing so, using... Um, mechanisms like the courts for their recognition of right, their rights.
0: What's the Indian Act, and when did that come into place?
1: Um, the Indian Act is a, a colonial piece of legislation that still exists, has been amended many times, came into place in 1876, and the Indian Act sought to control and, and does to a great degree still uh, the lives of Indigenous peoples from the time, First Nations peoples, from the time they Born to the time that uh, their will, uh, administering their will upon their death. But it's. Uh, the rewards of the state. The rewards right? of the state. Mm-hmm. Um, it has had significant impact, terrible impact, on removing traditional systems of government and imposing an impoverished notion of government on indigenous peoples, placing indigenous peoples on reserve and controlling uh, their lives, as I said, in every aspect
0: kind of formed a dependency on, what, government handouts?
1: Uh, Definitely. And... um the, the government is the trustee overseeing their wards, the Indian in Indians on reserve, and it has created a significant level of dependency wherein Indigenous peoples uh, look to the government for funding in terms of programs and services around education, around housing.
0: Um, so what, they've just become actually, used to it being given to them, or whatever Canadians deem appropriate to give?
1: Whatever the uh, um, the Department of Indian Affairs uh, provides to Indigenous communities on reserve, um, to the great degree of issuing a status card to an Indigenous person that says, yes, you are an Indian under the Indian Act, so taking away uh, nations, um, Ability as they once had to determine who their citizens are, something so core to a nation. Um, now you are identified as a number um, in the eyes of the federal government. I mean, I still have a status card in my wallet uh, right now that says that I am from uh, uh, We Wakai, Cape Mudge, and I have a registration number.
0: And more does that give you?
1: It gives you, um, it provides the ability, if you're on reserve and you purchase goods, that you get tax-free goods. Um, But beyond that, and some people look at that as being a significant benefit, beyond that, it it represents a colonial statute that dictates um, where you are registered, where you live, that is somewhat completely, it is completely opposite from being from a territory, from being uh, part of a nation and a government, my community, my nation, the um nation, is now uh, divided up as a result of the Indian Act into 15 Indian Act bands. That's not how we governed ourselves uh, uh, historically, and, and certainly we still have hereditary chiefs, and we still practice our system of government in the potlatch, But uh, we also have elected Indian Act chiefs and we're going through this process of trying to deconstruct our colonial reality and get back to the place not where we once were historically, because I don't think we can ever get back there, um, but our laws and our ways of being and making decisions, uh, we can move back to that place to determine what our core institutions of government are, how we elect our governing body, determining who our citizens are, having a constitution that brings back together as much as we can those 15 Indian Act Bands into a place where we have a governing body, a land base from which to build our community.
0: And the problem is these the heads of these bands, are probably they, they probably like being the heads of those bands and they don't want to give anything up. Is that the problem for one of them? Well, or is that too simple?
1: Well, I, I mean, every Indian Act band is different and have different realities indigenous communities are among the most impoverished communities in the country third world conditions in a for, mm. in a first world country um, has been coined you know people are living in the fourth world and um, there are significant challenges with housing um, high suicide rates the lack of potable water mm. in communities a- across the country has had um, crippling impacts on individuals. And we need to, as a country, in my view, um, and I hope in the view of many Canadians, we need to have parity in terms of investment into Indigenous communities and Indigenous peoples um, with that of the rest of Canada and Canadians. That's simply not the case right now. Mm -hmm. So living in the fourth world... Um, certainly has an impact on um, individuals and trying to remove oneself from that reality.
0: So you're you're obviously an exception then.
1: We are seeing success in communities. Yeah, um, but there are many individuals, many communities that are still challenged by the colonial legacy, and that's understandable. Mm-hmm. Um, moving away from dependency and having. Um, lived under the reality of the Indian Act for as long as it's been in place. Mm. Uh, change is hard. Change it creates um, fear and um, we need to look to where we're having success and where indigenous communities have been moving away from the Indian Act.
0: I'm sorry, the- fear that they're not going to be taken care of anymore, that they have to do everything themselves.
1: Um, Fear of change and dependency, Um, yeah, instills fear of not being able to have um, what you have been accustomed to
0: or... Even though it's not that great.
1: Even though it's not that great and not understanding what is beyond the post-colonial door and um, how if we... uh, as Indigenous peoples um, have the ability to be self-determining, have the ability to build an economy and to take back control and make decisions for oneself, how much more better off Indigenous communities will be and certainly the country will be.
0: Then there was the Charter in 1982, and specifically Section 35.
1: Mm -hmm. So I think that, well, I was... 11 years old in 1982. Um, I believe that many Canadians look back on 1982, look back at at the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and um, patriation of our Constitution as a significant time in in Canadian history. And um, beyond healthcare, thinking about the Charter and rights and freedoms that have been upheld in this country is something that defines us as Canadians.
0: Mm. Sort of independence from England, too, partly. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And, and, and developing um, more so our own identity. And since 1982, um, the Charter being in our Constitution and Section 35, which recognizes and affirms Aboriginal and treaty rights, um, the same was true for Indigenous peoples, having that placed into the Constitution. That represented a, represented a new beginning, the enshrinement of rights and the opportunities that could present or that are at that time presented my father and many other leaders were around that table and and the expressions of hope and optimism as a result uh was palatable and um beyond 1982 charter rights uh evolved as they should and
0: uh well there were all sorts of court cases that were won by indigenous groups Mm -hmm. 170 of them Mm -hmm. so far
1: well and and it's interesting and I have some reflections in the book about the evolution of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and some reflections on section 35 and what's happened with respect to section 35 Mm. since 1982 Um, very different um, evolution of rights uh, where in terms of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms We see that in terms of our identity. And um, when somebody says, I have the freedom of expression or religion or equality, the governments um, have sought to uphold those rights at every turn by introducing legislation, policy, and rightfully so. It's not true with respect to Section 35, where Indigenous peoples have advocated for rights or put forward um, an Indigenous right to uh, fish or um, sought a declaration of title as a result of Section 35, which Indigenous communities view as a full box of rights, Mm -hmm. the response of that assertion or saying, um, I have the inherent right to self-government, the response by the governments of the day up to including today, has been prove it, which is why Indigenous communities have had to go to court so many times to have courts um, which they have as you say in 170 plus cases to uphold their rights our challenge and opportunity uh, as Canadians as governments is to acknowledge the victories that have occurred in the courts, the leadership role that justices have taken, uh, for example, in Chilcotin having the first declaration of aboriginal title. That's 2014, right? Yeah. yeah. Our challenge is to um, take that leadership role and create the space for rights recognition and beyond the courts, beyond that adversarial um, environment, and actually build a, a new relationship together.
0: In all fairness, though, uh, the Canadian government has been funding all of these challenges.
1: Well, there's uh, in what in what sense that many Indigenous communities have have gone to court and and have gotten judgments at the end of the day and costs provided, mm-hmm. um,
0: but I know some lawyers have become very rich because of that.
1: Um, there has been an industry White built lawyers. around it. There's been a lot of lawyers that have made a significant amount of money uh, advocating for aboriginal rights and bringing rights in title cases uh, to the courts. That's true.
0: You can't argue with all these precedents.
1: Well, and it's it's uh, all of these court cases and leadership yeah. uh, from Sparrow and Delgamook to Chilcotin that has created the space. Uh, where we are right now and the advocacy that has been brought by Indigenous leaders um, into the courts. Um, certainly they have had representation but um, we need to recognize that we're not going to resolve these tough issues uh, in the courts and look for alternative ways to to reconcile.
0: Yeah, because you want to turn these rights into benefits.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
0: And, you know, when when I go to events and people talk about the fact that we're on specific lands, right in Montreal, right in Ottawa, what does that mean? In your eye, does that mean that Ottawa is owned by a band?
1: We can unpack that, that question. I, I think... A lot about the land acknowledgements and how prevalent the land acknowledgements have come, no matter where you are in the country, yeah. and government officials acknowledging the land, um, businesses when they open up conferences. And I think it's really important, but if we are to think a little bit further about those acknowledgements, I wonder what people think uh, they mean. For me, um, And I think words are important and those acknowledgements are important, but I think beyond that, an understanding of what um, it actually means to know that Indigenous peoples were here on these lands prior to the arrival of Europeans, and that means something. This is the question that we, as Indigenous peoples and our leaders before us, have been um, advocating and fighting in the courts for, is the recognition of those rights, which includes title sorry
0: title uh, recognition i understand title what does that mean
1: title to the land that there are particular pieces in of, of land in this country where there is aboriginal title for example the chilcotin as we said went to the supreme court of canada the first declaration of aboriginal title to Um, land was through the Chilcotin in the Namaya Valley in British Columbia. Mm. Um, They have been on that land since time, lost in memory, have um, uh, conducted themselves as sophisticated societies on that land, although somewhat nomadic, um, and have built their community and lived off that land. They have title to that land.
0: What about Ottawa or Montreal?
1: Well, there are Indigenous communities that have lived in those areas as well, and there are certain portions of that land where we don't want to have every Indigenous community go to court to seek a declaration of title, but there um, needs to be some recognition of rights to territory in order for an Indigenous community um, to um, move forward, to rebuild, to expand, to build their governments around. And through that we will be able to have the resources to build our governing institutions and contribute towards what I see as an amazing um, evolving cooperative federalism between and among different levels and orders of government.
0: Yeah, I mean, you need money in order to to build up these communities, to develop communities, to develop uh, an economy. But what about Ottawa? like what would happen is the city of Ottawa would say, okay, this is yours, sorry we took it. You can have a percentage of the taxes that come off that land or, I mean, is that that one possibility?
1: Well, I definitely think it's a possibility in terms of sharing revenue and Mm. dividing up the revenue pie we need to move beyond the fear that indigenous peoples are going to take over major cities. And um, while they may have um, occupied those lands prior to people coming here, we have uh, decisions that come out of the Supreme Court of Canada rightfully saying we're all here to stay. And, um, for me personally, and I suspect the vast majority of Indigenous communities, we're not wanting to remove non-Indigenous peoples from these lands, mm. but figure out a respectful way where we can live together mm. and where Indigenous peoples can be self-determining, including self-government. In order to have a functioning government, you have to have revenues that support that government. And when the country was created, when that discussion was happening... The revenue pie um, was divided among between and among the federal government and the provinces. There needs to be a fiscal policy, and in, um, that includes Indigenous peoples, and that provides Indigenous nations with the revenues that come from the land and a sharing of those revenues. Not everything, but um, we live in a federation, and that includes Indigenous governments. and In order to, for proper functioning governments, you have I have a revenue base and that potentially could include taxation and other other revenues that come in
0: mm-hmm and also enforcing your own laws
1: absolutely yeah. um, and and that will look different uh, in terms of what jurisdictions indigenous communities want to draw down um, depending on their priorities um, but uh, we'll have to be able a law is only as good as its ability to be enforced
0: Here's Conrad Black, hmm. talking about your guide to nation-building that you, uh, you wrote with your husband, uh, Tim Rebould. It's a toolkit for the self-emasculation of Canada as a sovereign jurisdiction.
1: <laughs> well, I really don't take too much stock in, in comments by uh, Mr. Black. When I was the regional chief of the BC Assembly of First Nations, um, we worked uh, incredibly hard with Indigenous leaders uh, to reflect the work that... Indigenous communities in British Columbia and across the country were doing in terms of moving through the post-colonial door, in terms of removing themselves from the Indian Act in many ways, whether it be around land management or developing a fiscal management uh, law or sectoral governance reforms in the area of education or negotiating self-government agreements or comprehensive treaties, there is a lot of success of Indigenous communities rebuilding and the toolkit is an amalgamation and a celebration of the work that Indigenous communities have done Um, and I'm incredibly proud of it and I believe that as Indigenous communities move along what I like to call a continuum of governance reform and federal governments and provincial governments need to open the post-colonial door Mm. for Indigenous communities to walk through it at their own pace and based on their own priorities um, that obviously um, assists Indigenous communities in improving their quality of life and ensuring practicing and thriving cultures, Mm. um, building an economy, of course helping their communities, but broadly speaking, helping the country. This is the unfinished business of Confederation, and anybody that looks to um, to rebuild or looks at the rebuilding of Indigenous nations within a stronger Canada is someone that has missed the point.
0: And it's a stronger Canada because it's a juster Canada. You say, why is it stronger?
1: Well, I, I mean, we can think about it in terms of. Uh, if we have a neighbor um, and or we have a house and our neighbor's house is not as good as our house mm-hmm. or um, uh, it impacts um, us, it impacts our property value. If we have a neighbor that is... His or her house is well taken care of, um, <laughs> built well. Um, it improves the, the our neighborhood. I know that's not necessarily the best analogy. oh I think it's one
0: that <laughs> would would strike home with many Canadians for sure.
1: You know, for for the vast majority of of this uh, country's history, Indigenous communities were forgotten at the end of a, a gravel road, and yeah. we need to. Uh, ensure that every person in this country including indigenous peoples have the opportunity to be self-determining to make decisions for themselves their communities and their nations to be strong and to contribute towards this great country and um, I was always taught and I reflect on this in the book that uh, um, everybody in in a community has a role to play everybody in the country has a role to play and if you're inhibited from playing that role, then the community in the country suffers. So um, the ability to provide the same opportunities uh, in this country for everyone to succeed is, is going to improve the country. That's what um, a just society means, where there's equality inclusion and opportunity.
0: It's interesting that Pierre Trudeau really pushed the just society. Atrocities have been committed against many, many groups uh, and peoples and nations in the world. Mm -hmm. Why should this generation pay for it?
1: In terms of uh, um, remedying those injustices, we have to. We societies uh, will be judged by how they treat their most vulnerable. Um, The uh, inability to achieve or create the space for true reconciliation with Indigenous peoples has um, and will continue to hold the country back. And um, remedying or addressing the wrongs of the past puts us on a foundation to move into a better future. Um, I am very hardened by discussions that I have with Canadians uh, right across the country who are becoming more aware of our history um, through important report, reports like the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report, the recent um, Murdered and Missing Women uh, um, report, and their calls uh, for justice. Um, we, un- we need to understand that history and, and uh, in order to move, as I say, beyond it to, to remedy those, um, those wrongs um, to make sure that uh, everyone's on an equal footing.
0: Yeah, if Canada's not going to do it, then who else? I mean, I think that's why I was so impressed with what you did. It's like... That's what we want. We want honesty in politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we shouldn't just sort of shake our head and say that's that's politics.
1: No, I mean we. Uh, I think we live in one of, if not the best, countries in the world, and we need to continue to be an example t- throughout the world in terms of uh, justice and, and human rights and how we. Um, engage with and relate and build relationships as a country with its original inhabitants with indigenous peoples um, is something that we need to be an example for throughout the world and you know nation states came together, um, back in 2007, and for the most part, um, endorsed the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, mm. which, which provides um, minimum standards for the survival, dignity, and well-being of Indigenous peoples within uh, throughout the world. And Canada can be an example about how to significantly operationalize those minimum standards here in Canada and create the space for rebuilding
0: in your society or your 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 world your system you're known as a hilgast
1: mm mhm yeah
0: close enough <laughs> not really not really that's okay <laughs> call <clears throat> uh, quote one who correct this is just it couldn't have been written any better one who corrects the chief's path mhm like were you thinking about that when you? Uh, it was it was about uh, the rule of law. That's what you took your stand on. But you were also correcting the chief. The chief. <laughs>
1: right. It's. Um The first speech I gave when I, after I became Minister of Justice and Attorney General, I spoke, and it's not in the book, but um, there's a lot of common themes through the speeches that I've given. Mm -hmm. Um, I spoke about our potlatch system and our traditions, and and I come from, in many important ways, a matrilineal culture, uh, which means, you know, descendancy and passes through the female line. And um, in our potlatch, uh, in our system of government, men um, are always chiefs. We call them hamatsa. And um, symbolically, in our potlatch, a um, hiligasti, uh, of which I am one, guides the chief, the hamatsa, into the big house and essentially tames that chief and determines when that chief is ready to lead. <laughs> and my grandmother, her name was Buglatti, um, said that women are far too important and too busy to be chiefs, but we guide the chiefs. And um, yeah, I've, I, it's interesting how that role, I mean, I think has, has followed me, um, not to say that I am guiding um, people, but in my role as, as the Attorney General, that was my responsibility to be the caretaker of uh, the justice system, um, to defend the independence of our institutions and uphold the rule of law.
0: So so men are the bosses, but women make all the decisions.
1: <laughs> <laughs> men are men are the chiefs and, and women uh, help to guide the chiefs in my culture, and I think in life, if uh, um, men and women are all actively engaged in decision making, we have better decisions. That's for sure.
0: <laughs> okay. Uh, I just want to talk a bit about the uh, about the book itself. There's already a lot of work that's gone into it by just the writing of that and delivering of the speeches. Uh, but basically, it was a matter of uh, editing and repackaging, and then getting it out at the right time now if blackface hadn't happened I think you might have made a bigger splash or maybe not what do you think?
1: I mean it's hard to say I I am pleased that the book came out now and um, maybe this this is a a book about policy Mm -hmm. and um, I hope and even in my Elevated um, the elevated attention that I'm receiving, um, putting this out as somewhat of an archive of what Indigenous communities have been advocating for for over a decade. I hope it plays an important part in the in the conversation, and I believe the Indigenous issues should be uh, an important part of the conversation in terms of leading to up to the federal election. Um, So I hope it contributes towards that discussion. It uh, was purposeful for me to have it out at this time. Mm. Um, I actually wanted to, when I stepped down as regional chief prior to entering into federal politics, I wanted to publish a book of my speeches back then in 2015. And um, I was convinced not to do it um, by a number of people saying no focus on the campaign and I actually it was my decision but I regret that decision mm. but now fast forward I find that the speeches that are included and there is many more I find it interesting in the sense of the different perspectives that I had or the different roles from being regional chief and being the minister of justice and, and nobody has ever been in that position and I know that there will be many more uh, people in that position but to provide some reflections on the issues and, and to contribute that towards the discussion is uh, why I wanted to get it out so fast and, and certainly uh, UBC Press was very accommodating and worked incredibly hard to do it. It was an interesting process to go to. I worked very closely with uh, Leslie Erickson, who was my amazing editor, and there was a lot of overlap in many of the speeches that I gave. Yeah. We tried to edit it down to... Um, themes, which I think work in in the book, and trying to provide an equal balance between speeches that were given when I was regional chief, when I was the Minister of Justice and Attorney General, and the the last speeches when I was removed by the Prime Minister from the caucus, and um, that speech was reflections of my being a member of Parliament. And then, you know, a lot of uh, um, reflections and speeches uh, given outside of the country,
0: and yeah, South Africa, Australia, mm. yeah,
1: and and going back through them um, and rereading them and editing them uh, took me right back to the time when I was delivering those speeches or giving those mm-hmm. lectures and um, interesting times from giving a speech in front of the former Prime Minister, uh, Prime Minister Harper at the First Nations Crown Gathering, or or providing reflections on the recent passing of uh, Nelson Mandela, to giving speeches to a, a large room when I was uh, Minister of Justice. So it was good to, to go back and think about those times and, and remark for me um, how things have changed, but uh, the issues and the solutions remain the same.
0: I was struck by the fact that uh, the formulators of apartheid in South Africa referred to the Indian mm-hmm. Indian Act.
1: Yeah. yeah, a lot of similarities between Canada and South Africa, although the indigenous uh, population in South Africa far eclipses uh, our population, which is still hovering around five percent.
0: You mentioned just just in closing here. You mentioned uh, uh, leaving the caucus or being kicked out of the caucus. Uh, Here's Conrad one more time. It it was a scandalous and an outrageous abuse of her office that as attorney for the Crown, she ordered her officials to capitulate to Indigenous claimants. This Um, was a directive. Yeah, I
1: suspect, and maybe I'm wrong in this, that uh, Mr. Black didn't read the directive. I am... incredibly proud of the directive on Indigenous civil litigation that I, in one of my last acts as the Attorney General was to release publicly to show uh, how we as a department, the Department of Justice have been uh, working for the, like prior to that, the last 18 months to two years and um, the directive was developed in uh, in concert with my public servants who took it very seriously and overall if I'm going to summarize the objective of the directive was to do everything we can as Canada as lawyers for Canada to remove cases from the courts to try and find other pathways to build relationships, knowing that knowing the history of uh, the Crown Indigenous relationships, that history hasn't been built in the courts, but we need to look to other arrangements, other agreements that we can engage in to actually create the space to build the relationships based on the recognition of rights as opposed to going to court and saying those rights don't exist. And then when we're forced to do something by the courts, then we do it at that time. Mm. Um, we're never going to get anywhere if we continue to do that. That's not to say that um, there won't be court cases, but court going to court should be the last resort and the directive sought, and I um, hope it continues Um to focus on relationships first, as opposed to the adversarial nature of courts,
0: which is a very you kind know, of an indigenous way of arriving at solutions, more so than the litigious approach. I don't know how practical it is, but
1: well, um, the way that uh, um, governments have been operating and taking approach to deny rights at every turn has not worked. And uh, we need to, and I sought to do this when I was the Attorney General with respect to Indigenous Peoples and more broadly, uh, take a different view or a different approach, a different perspective on risk and Mm -hmm. risk management. And what are the costs of not creating the space to build relationships with Indigenous Peoples? Um, What are the costs to continuing to try and um, look to the courts to define our relationship we need to take the the bull by the horns and take a leadership role that the courts have been playing for so long um, and have the political will to actually do the hard things that need to be done without excuses. And that's gonna take all of us. It's not gonna take one government, um, but it's gonna take transformative leadership and as much as we can, removing discussion around indigenous rights and indigenous reconciliation away from partisan politics. It's the opportunity we have as a country.
0: I'm loath to bring this final point up. But it did disturb me as a fan of yours mm-hmm. when I saw the report on global TV about spousal travel and the fact that uh, you were able to take advantage of that to, a, to the tone of about ten times what other, the average of what other MPs um, did. I just wonder how you account for that.
1: Well, I am very grateful that there is a House of Commons policy that enables uh, members of Parliament to designate somebody to travel. And you know, getting involved in federal politics was not an easy decision for me, and I suspect for many other people. Mm. And my husband and I... Um, Your husband
0: is a lobbyist for... Native groups. His job is to come to Ottawa often, no or no.
1: Well, my husband's uh, not a lobbyist. He has um, built um, uh, his life around working with Indigenous communities for over thirty years and has worked with many in, in British Columbia. But that is separate and apart from your question in terms of expenses and travel. We had. As a couple, made a decision to uh, ensure that we put our marriage first, and um, that because he had the ability um, to travel um, with me, um,
0: you I wanted to see him as much. As I you welcomed could. it, yeah. And, and I that don't sense.
1: believe that the cost. So you're still in love, then? We're still. I take my marriage. And vows very seriously, and the cost of public service can't come at the expense of families or uh, your relationship.
0: And you were taking advantage of a program that was there for that, and no one said you couldn't, I guess. Is that it?
1: Yeah, there's a House of Commons policy that uh, members of Parliament are able to... To utilize, to be able to try to have some semblance of work-life yeah. balance, and, and, and it, I, it
0: destroys I, marriages for sure.
1: Well, I mean, when I first came to Ottawa, um, like other members of Parliament, you have an orientation, and and the orientation I remember it distinctly. People that were presenting said, "Be careful! I mean, alcohol uh, is around." And, other women, other men, and that and and that. There are many divorces. Um, you know, I'm uh, fortunate to have a very supportive husband, and, um, you know, it was no coincidence, I suspect, that uh, I was raised as an issue in terms of expenses around the same time that the election was called. So.
0: Yeah, will leave it at and that.
1: I would, <laughs> yeah. Thank you.
0: The book is really, uh, <clears throat> you asked me, it's about keeping promises and uh, telling the truth.
1: Hmm. I, I, I love those messages. Um, keeping um, or holding true and embracing solutions that Indigenous peoples and others have brought forward uh, to um, enable uh, Indigenous communities to rebuild, to be self-determining within a stronger Canada is going to be good for our country. The country way, we can be proud of. country we can be proud of, one that's built on principle, one that embraces uh, indigenous peoples, and I hope to a great degree, indigenous peoples' world's view around collaboration, around consensus-based decision-making, around, and I'm reflecting on my own culture, around valuing Every individual within the community, and ensuring that that individuals can achieve their full potential, that's um, what I hope is imparted here, in you know some of the pages of this book, and that this is a an undertaking that we as a country, in terms of um, finding uh, true reconciliation between Indigenous peoples, uh, among Indigenous peoples, and the rest of the Canadians, that's the opportunity we have to. Finish the unfinished business of Confederation.
0: Well, I hope you win your seat.
1: Thank you. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I hope you win it resoundingly.
0: (laughs) Well, um, I do as well. Uh,
1: It looks. It looks good. Um, We are getting support from right across the country. I have an amazing team that while I'm here talking to you in Mm. Ottawa and I'll be flying back there on Sunday is working uh, incredibly hard on what we call super Saturday and it's super Saturday six right now. Um, Why is it super Saturday? We just call it super Saturday because we do door knocking and a whole bunch of activities to reach out to people in Vancouver, Granville and we have hundreds of volunteers that are on the streets right now and um, keeping us engaged and, um, I look forward to the to the to the federal election. I have always been one to work incredibly hard. I know that running as an independent is not something that happens every day, um, but I am going to do everything I can to hopefully re earn the the trust and support of the voters of Vancouver Granville.
0: And hopefully, you'll bash away at the partisan political bullshit that we have to put up with?
1: Um, Hopefully. We live and I in a hyper-partisan world and that's reflected in some of the well, some of the the discussions that's happening um, in this federal election campaign. We're not going to Uh, resolve the major issues of our time, particularly climate change or indigenous reconciliation, if we think that um, the solutions and the answers are confined to one party. Um, All 338 members of parliament that are elected on October 21st have to come together with the best ideas and solutions to build a plan on climate change, a bold plan of climate action that lives beyond the life of one government. That's our opportunity and the hyper-partisan nature of politics has eclipsed policy it's eclipsed people honesty and honesty and Canadians voices and we need to take it back and I hope that people when they go out to vote on October the 21st or before in advance polls that they consider who will best represent them Uh, who will best represent their voices in Ottawa as opposed to having members of Parliament who represent Ottawa back in their constituents. So we're looking to have a very representative Parliament and do what we can in terms of democratic reform to change the parliamentary um, standing orders and look at electoral reform to make um, our democracy more representative.
0: And you've got a good partner in Jane Philpott.
1: Jane Philpott, yes. Also running as an independent Mm -hmm. in uh, Markham Stouffville. Jane and I have become very good friends over the last four years, and I see in Jane the best minister of the crown our country has ever had. She is a woman that stands up on principle, and in the face of standing alone, uh, resigned from cabinet on that principle, and um, Canadians should be incredibly proud to have somebody like that in Parliament, and I am very hopeful that the voters of Markham Stouffville will agree.
0: The book is From Where I Stand, Building Indigenous Nations for a Stronger Canada. The author is uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.